0: Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Linda Ginger, Linda is a global leader of a strategic marketing coming from the background of marketing and sales. now help the organization to validate their business idea and also to validate the success of the project and in the corporate using the data science. Linda is also the advisory board of this growth science and the non-executive director of UniQuest on top of running her own company called Attractor. I think one thing that you probably really, if that is one biggest takeaway in this interview and uh, in this episode is that how you need to be customer-centric and look at what exactly the customer wants And then you work backward to using the data analytics technology and science to be able to support that journey in solving the problem of your customer. And also, at the same time, it is about using the data science and using the science to be able to validate the success of your project and the success of your company. Now, your company may be different in a lot of way but strategically, globally, if you look at the top level, most of the company are still very much the same, i.e. how are you trying to solve the problem for your customer so that they would want to buy your product and service and you could do that by using data science and you can predict the success if you understand the um, or the problem that you're trying to solve for your customer. If you have any questions for myself or Linda, please feel free to send us a voice message using the Anchor app. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for coming on to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today.
1: Well, no, thank you, Jason, for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to join your show.
0: I can assure you that the pressure is mine. Why don't we let's start by sharing a bit about what you do and uh, your company, Attractor. Uh, What exactly are you guys doing for your customer?
1: Well, I started Attractor, Jason, for the sole purpose of helping everyday business owners know how and where to adapt their businesses in times of change. And then to do this, we use data science, which is extraordinarily more accurate, as you know, and faster than traditional methods.
0: I must say that, as suppose you came from the background working with large corporate and you have seen how they have got those tools and those sort of knowledge in engaging the customer. And it is those knowledge that you are now applying for the SME that they could actually do exactly the same thing as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, I guess that is the exciting thing. So, you know, data science has been used by the Fortune 500 for years now and being able to enable these everyday businesses access to the same science and tools that they can, you know, hopefully compete and win in the marketplace as well.
0: You have been with the world of sales and marketing for more than two decades now. It is like you have witnessed all the technological revolution in the industry unraveling right in front of your eyes. So, what are the major differences between then and now, and before data and after data? Well, actually, well, thanks for reminding me how old
1: I am, Francis. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, uh, it's okay. I mean, 20 years is a long time. Well, actually, it's probably more than 20 years now, and there certainly has been lots of change. However, the job that needs to be done has always been the same. So, businesses have needed to adapt to change as long as business has been around. And then to respond to that change, businesses have always needed new products and services and a are always looking at how they can leverage technology to get a competitive advantage. So we've always had and needed data to inform that. I mean, market research is an example of, of people know about market research, of collecting and using data. But what we haven't had is technology and science that can power that data. And, you know, even science itself has advanced I mean, we've now got availability of big data and we've got technologies like no other time <laughs> and then we've got all that we've learnt in, you know, we're just applying mathematics which has been around for decades as well. So, we now yet have got data, we're using data but the way that we use data has now become more powerful and our wisdom has become so much more, I guess, refined because of the science that's behind it which has also been enabled by technology and all of those wonderful stuff as well.
0: (laughs) I agree. Currently, you are also uh, the advisory board member at Growth Science. What does your role at Growth Science entail?
1: Okay, well, probably the first thing to tell listeners is that Growth Science is a data science research firm. It's a global company and it's based in the United States. My role as on the board is to help the Growth Science team grow the data set. So, at the moment, Meas, which is the computing system that GrowSite manages, has the largest global data set of innovation and growth that we know of around the world. So, my job really then is trying to contribute to the research and development of new tools and resources that businesses can use and also help expand that data set so we can keep growing because the more data we have, the better the science will be.
0: What sort of data are you trying to grow them? and could that be applicable? I suppose the question that people would be interested to ask sometime, as you and I were talking about earlier is that their business is in Australia, or their business is in Southeast Asia. And how could this data set that you're collecting at growth science could be applicable to them?
1: Well. There are idiosyncrasies, I guess, but in the main, because we're now globalisation has happened, we've got to think that we're in a global marketplace. So the data that we get informs how we might go to market, for example, in a, in a global marketplace. Now, the data that I'm specifically talking about with growth science and the data set we want to continue growing is the computing system, and the computing system actually predicts what the likelihood is that a new product or a startup or a merger and acquisition, what likelihood that initiative or project might have to either survive or die? And it looks over a ten year horizon. So the more of these predictions we can put through the computing system, the more data we know as to whether the performance accuracy of those predictions we're making sure that we're staying on the cutting edge, so to speak, of improving the tool and making sure that it gets better over time. So that's sort of the data that we're looking at trying to always be on top of.
0: Would you please share with us a little bit more about MIS in layman terms? What is the full name of MIS and how it came to be and what's is called Capability, I think you just mentioned about predicting the success of the project and uh, the startup or a company, right? Can you give us a few more examples how it has worked so far?
1: Yeah, yeah, no no problem. I guess the best thing for people to think about Mies or the best way to view Mies is think about it like IBM Watson. So IBM Watson, you can ask it a question and it will give you a probability of an answer of what the answer to that might be. So ME stands for Market Acceptation Simulation Engine. I know all the acronyms there is under the world, but but it is a simulation engine. It is very specifically looking about a market and how an idea when it goes into that market, whether it's going to live or die, and that's where the science fits in. So it's a computing system. Its core capability is to predict the likelihood an innovation is going to survive or die. I think the most exciting thing that I get thralled about is that not only does it give you a prediction, but it tells you where your fail point is and what advice you could do to actually improve your outcome. So don't just think that because you've got a prediction that says it's going to die, it will go, but if you did this, this, and this... You could improve its odds. So does that sort of answer your question? Yes, I think so. <laughs> About what it does. So, yeah, first thing, think like IBM Watson. It's a big computing system with lots of data. You ask it a question and it it will give you an answer with a probability of that answer.
0: From the past experience, how accurate it can predict the business outcome?
1: So very accurately. So for more than a decade, Mies' prediction accuracy has actually remained very consistent. So when Mies predicts that something is likely to die, it is 86% accurate because we track over 10 years to make sure that what Mies said and what happened with it 10 years later, and that's a collection data point. When Mies predicts that something is likely to survive, it is 67% accurate. So it's not... You know, it's not 100% accurate and that's why we love collecting more data because if we can get more data, we can actually refine it and hopefully improve its accuracy over time. So, but when you compare 67% accuracy to what actually happens in the real world, Jason, is what's outstanding. Is that, and anyone can Google this, just Google success rates of startups. It sits around 90 to 95%. If you look at new products, particularly in consumer packaged goods, just do a Google search, it's around 85%. So that's fail. That's 90 to 95% failure of startups and 85% of new products and consumer products. I mean, they're big numbers and it's like that's trillions of dollars people have put to trying to make those innovations work. So on the flip side, let's say we're 10 to 30% accurate, and Mises predicting at 67% accuracy, that's like nearly two to three times what we would traditionally get from outcomes of innovation.
0: I think another way of looking at it as well is that rather than going into the whole industry or the whole project blind without knowing that it was a success or not, having some level of understanding with this 67% accuracy is better of not knowing at all. And uh, as they were inputting more data and as they were observing that, they could certainly improve the score um, over the time, eh?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think a good example of, and I don't typically work with startups unless it's more just advisory or educating startups, but there's one that comes to mind. So the gentleman that actually started this research is called Thomas Thurston. And Thomas actually lived in Australia for two years, so I was very privileged to be able to get firsthand to work with him. And one day we were in Sydney and his job is actually he's a partner at a venture capital firm out of Silicon Valley called WI Hembrick Ventures, and they use Meese to pick their early stage venture capital deals. But anyway, he, they'd happened to do an analysis a niche analysis for a startup out of Sydney and so he and I walked down to Stone and Chalk to, um, was it Stone and Chalk down there, the Fintech place? Oh, anyway, it's in Bridge Street. <laughs> so anyway, we went to meet the startup and Thomas said he's always nervous giving feedback to startups about their their baby that might be ugly <laughs> and Thomas said, Look, we've, our fund is closed anyway, but I thought given I was in Sydney, I would just give you some feedback on the analysis that we did. And I hate to tell you, but it wouldn't be one we would actually invest in because it shows that it's likely to fail. But, and then he just asked him, he said, So, how have you been going as it is? Like, how does it feel as a startup trying to launch this new idea? And he said, Look, we've really struggled. It's taken us more than a year to – we just can't even get in the door of the banks that we want to be able to, we think, are are great partners. And Thomas said to him, look, from the niche analysis, this is what it says that you should try and do that would improve your odds of success. So, at the moment, you are striving to enter a tier one bank. And if you looked at – your product and what they called a low-end strategy or a latent demand strategy. If you were to apply a low-end or a latent demand strategy, and heck, for your listeners, I can this is a whole nother conversation, Jason. So that there is a strategic way that you can actually go to market that will give you competitive advantage and get into the market much, much quicker. Anyway, at the end of the conversation, I went on for more than just that. He rang us five weeks later. Well, first of all, he said, that is the best advice the venture capital firm has ever given me and thank you very much. I mean, that little tip, it was just one of the things that we shared with him that he could try and do. In five weeks later, he rang us and said, I have just got my first client by applying the strategy that you told me to do and I'm so, so grateful. Now, some startups don't like to hear the things that we might have hold this startup. But if they're open to hearing what science has got to say about how they might go to market, it's not that their idea is a bad idea. It's just the way that it might be, yeah, its business model may not be all the strategies that you're going to the market may not be appropriate to give it the greatest amount of success. So that's just a wee example of a, a sort of how we might use it in a startup. But it's basically the same. If you're an existing business, And you're trying to launch a new idea or a new product or you're trying to understand what technology might give you a competitive advantage. It's the same
0: principles apply. I want to double check one thing though could means be used in the large corporate in uh, determining the success of their project. So say for example a uh, large bank in Australia or in the state, they probably have about hundreds of projects at any given of time. Could they use MIS to determine all the projects they have got on their own?
1: Yeah, no, so that's actually a really good point, Jason. So in most corporates, so MIS is the computing system that corporates get and it's part of the research. So there's about 12 to 15 Fortune 500 companies that participate in the MIS research every year. So one of the ways that they use it, and I think it's the most effective way, just like the venture capital firm, is to use it as a portfolio management tool. So Growth Science has a portal that all of those projects can actually be loaded into the computing system and they all get analysed to see what their risk is. So it reminds me of one company that had 20 projects in their portfolio and they had said to their board that they were going to generate Or anticipating to generate $500 million from that portfolio. They knew some things would fail but they really didn't know where to look to find where those fail points might be. So, they used MEECE to then analyze each of those projects and it showed where the likely ones were going to fail. So, In the end, I think the the value of that portfolio from Mises' perspective was around the 200 million mark. So that meant that there was no way it was ever going to achieve a 500 million or whatever it was US dollar outcome. So it gave the company the ability to be able to then decide are there some that we should just get rid of out of the portfolio? Is there some we could use Mises' advice and actually turn from? you know, a fail into a more likely survival? And what could we do to now actually add more to the portfolio, more projects? I could take out some, what ones could we add? And, you know, they chose one. They went, hey, look, we're, this is strategic, this particular one. I know it says it's red, but we plan to keep it in there. And that's fine. That's, that's what it's all about is being able to make decisions on, which ones do you want to keep in? Which ones you want to take as a risk? And they just said, look, once we hit that target of X million in our development, if we haven't actually cracked it, you've got a margin of error. We've just shown you what the margin of error is, the 33%. We'll keep that one. It just might be that it's one of the ones that is in your margin of error and we can make it work. But we'll cut it loose once we've spent X dollars on it. Now, now that's portfolio management, don't you think, Jason? So, yes, your question about being able to manage projects that might be all around growth and innovation, it is the ideal solution for being able to do that.
0: And I presume if any of our audience from Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia or UK, Europe, if they are interested with growth science with MIS, it is something that they could actually assess to or it is only by invitation or is it exclusive to certain company only?
1: So we take new people every year. I shouldn't say we. i board, obviously. So I've identified companies that we would love to have and, and to have their domain expertise in our research portfolio, and I would then introduce them to growth science, and they would go through a vetting process to go, is this a good fit or not? But, yeah, absolutely. Companies that have an interest in being part of this who get basically unlimited. Um, access to be able to test their ideas and get predictions, that's available. They sign up to an annual membership, and some people we've had for as long as Mies has been around since 2008. And so, yeah, they'd be more than welcome, and they can reach out to either you or me, Jason, and um, I can put them forward to Growth Science to evaluate whether it might be a good fit or not.
0: Which industry can it mostly benefit, though?
1: So there is – it's probably done every industry known to man. So, yeah, it doesn't. It's, it's agnostic to industry. So anyone or any industry can benefit, anyone that's trying to compete and win in the marketplace, who are trying to innovate, who are doing mergers and acquisitions and want to know who's out there we could acquire and are they the right strategic fit versus not or we've got this idea or portfolio that we want to manage. So I would say the only thing, Jason, if there's one caveat, I would put over what meets... Cannot do. It can't predict regulatory risk.
0: Okay, absolutely.
1: And it can't predict, you know, technical risk. So that's entirely the humans' job <laughs> to do those two. And also where data might be needed. That so, for example, you wouldn't trust data that comes out of North Korea, for example. So, or and some states of China. Someone might say the whole of China at the moment, but let's not go there with that one. So there are, you know, data sets that we don't trust because they're not in a competitive
0: marketplace. So Absolutely. So the next question I have for you then is coming out from the experience that you have got at Growth Science, I know you also spend some time in running the business to some extent. My question for you is how you are using data science and MIS in your new business attractor.
1: And you're right, Jason, I was CEO for a couple of years. I had my own business before then, but I just couldn't believe the amazing stuff that I was learning from data science. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I had someone else run my other business and really we've transitioned that business into now being able to use some of the science from Growth Science. So I licensed a piece of IP from Growth Science. So we use the knowledge from the research. So as I said, Mies has people that are Fortune 500 companies or big organizations that share their data. The data that we get, the learnings, the wisdom from Mies, we can apply to business ideas. We can actually engineer ideas because of the knowledge we have actually from Mies. So these are the things that I'm now making available for everyday businesses. So how can we discover new ideas, new products, new business models? And we use the research and plus a couple of data science tools to actually get the data, be able to analyze the data, and then apply the science to be able to help them find those places. And just out of the sheer way we go about that process means that we're seeing ideas that have a higher likelihood of survival, that nothing's, you know, 100%. We're just helping people actually be more confident about the decisions they make of finding and, and launching ideas.
0: So this is what you call as the opportunity mind attractor, right? In doing the super fast market analysis. So I suppose I just want to tie it together. What is the relationship between opportunity mind and me then?
1: Yeah, probably... The two things in common is that they're both being created by growth science Uh (laughs) and the main relationship with opportunity mind is the knowledge that comes from me, what I call the science. So how can we apply the science so that everyday businesses can get access to that science in the way that they formulate their ideas so they're not one of the 85% that fail or the 95% that fail? How can they have odds just like the Fortune 500? That's where the connection is within those two.
0: So as the data science capability of opportunity my keeps improving over the years, can you sense what lies in future for it and how advanced can it become in the next couple of years?
1: Oh, Interesting you should ask me that, Jason, because at Growth Science we've been working on that very thing at the moment. The first thing that happened is – when COVID happened, because part of it is actually a facilitated workshop where we have market represent, you know, people that represent a market participate in the getting the data. And I remember when COVID hit, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to digitize that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we have digitized that. I can deliver that entirely on Zoom now, but we are going one step further and it's really just trying to keep up with people's expectations. So. We mentioned previously that I had a background in sales and marketing strategy, and the big part, most of the component of that job, all those jobs, has been market research. Now, market research is extremely expensive. It is very time-consuming. I mean, it takes a long time and costs a lot of money. And so, opportunity mine, in my opinion, I mean, Mises is like the super fast thing. But you have to have the idea first to put into the computing system, and they even do an opportunity mine with their clients to actually find ideas that they can then put through me. So here we go. We go market research that takes forever. When I was in corporate doing market research, when I started my own business in 2011, we went, okay, let's help everyday businesses, you know, the small, medium, the family owned businesses. Let's try and help them transform their businesses so they can compete. Because, Jason, they make up, they employ 47% of all employees in Australia and contribute 35% to GDP. So they are very passionate about how can we make these companies. so, And using the science and applying it this way, we can actually assure that those companies actually have enduring value that keep going on. So we are looking at how do we even digitize those things. And I was just about to lead into that customer expectations change. So we have been able to pull some of this data, big data, for as long as opportunity mine have been happening. But people haven't really been, I guess, that trusting of big data, artificial intelligence. But it's becoming ubiquitous at the moment, don't you think, Jason? So people are becoming a lot more open to Letting data actually guide rather than us pulling it in a manual process. So, the opportunity for Opportunity Mind is that we just use big data to understand what drives that specific market, whether it be, I don't know, counselling services, or another one might be handmade card making, or, you know, fire sprinkler systems in new high rise buildings, all sorts of things we can actually ask now pull big data on that can inform some of the things we would have done manually, even in an opportunity mine. Opportunity mine takes two days, 48 hours to come out with ideas, whereas it used to take months when I was in my old corporate job. So being able to now go, we could do that in a day, really, really excites me. <laughs> do everything in a day, wouldn't that be cool? So yeah, so we've got some things on the horizon. We're actually just testing some things right at this very moment about how we can actually digitize more of that and still have the human connection of course but it just adds so much more value to business if we can do faster and it's got more accuracy it's not relying on our intuition that's what i just so love
0: without revealing what goes on and what being proposed to them can you give us an example of how some of the clients are using the opportunity my to come up with this new idea in terms of engaging with the customer in that 48 hours period.
1: Yeah, okay, well, I can give you one. That So I find that there's people that have got ideas, so business owners might have an idea, but they, they don't have confidence in the idea that it's going to transform their business or make it better or make it more competitive. So they hang on to this idea and don't do anything with it. And then there's other companies or other business owners who are going, I have got no idea how I'm going to change my business and adapt. So I'm going to tell you about a business that got us to validate an idea. And it was, yep, an owner of a very successful business. Actually, here in Brisbane, Jason, I can give you that much. And he had this idea that he'd been sitting on for two years. And it was a technology idea and he was thinking about how he might be able to develop it, but he said, I didn't know where to go. Like what technology do I use and who can I trust to share this idea with and who out there would even know that this idea is a good idea? So when I was CEO of Growth Science at the time and I just presented the research and the science and he was in the front row and I could see him sort of jumping around in his seat. And I just had to go, is there something you've got to ask? Because usually they let the questions at the end. And he went, so are you telling us, he was looking around at everyone in the room, you're telling us that we could validate an idea? And I said, yep, yeah, we can validate an idea. And he went, we've got to see each other. So within a few weeks, we'd actually signed NDAs, et cetera, and ran an opportunity mine. And there was – and part of the opportunity mine is the two-step process we get together and we identify a market scope that we want to explore, then we get together, assemble anywhere between 16 and, say, 28 people that represent the value chain in that marketplace or the market scope that we have identified. And we have a very systematic way about asking questions in that facilitated workshop, all for the purpose of collecting data And they go through – yes, I won't go into the detail about what we do, but we end up with a whole heap of data that we then put through an analytics engine which comes back with a what we call a map of that market and also a ranked list. So in that workshop, for example, that market identified 52 things that it needed to have a great experience with the market. When we put it through the analytics engine, it identified that there was, I think, five of the 52 were very influential in the market. So, if those things could be developed, they would be highly influential across the whole market. So, we then, in the second step, we actually dive into each of those five things and really detail, <laughs> and we find out who's actually competing in each one of those things, so who in the marketplace is competing, and then we apply the science and formulate ideas that can actually help optimize that idea and know how to launch it. So, that is now in play. So, after two years of thinking about it, he then made a decision to do something about it, and we've, it was a technology idea that he thought he was going to put in his own business to compete. But we realized doing the opportunity mine that the bigger opportunity was actually a global need. So he set up another business that is actually building the technology. They've done the proof of concept already and the early response. It gets launched as a soft launch in September this year. And we've had remarkable feedback. So and we know exactly how this product needs to be marketed to the market based on that opportunity mine so that it gives it the best chance of survival. So the guy that, there's the business owner, he said he feels like an entrepreneur again. He said when he started his business 15 years ago, he said, I just feel all excited, the development of it. We had to find the right technology people, obviously, to try and do that. So I work with a commercialization manager that does that. I just do opportunity mine. Share who I think is fantastic to help with getting that, product commercialized if they don't have their own commercialization capability, and then they help them with identifying the right technology partner and, you know, help with the capital raising if it's required and things like that. So, you know, so that's an exciting story that has helped somebody actually bring their idea to market, but it could have easily have gone, you know what, the idea, I don't think you'd ever be able to walk away from an opportunity of mine and go, the idea sucks. But you might go, well, we are going to go to market with that idea using this as the key hook. You'll see using the process that you might go, no, you really should use this as the hook. That is a lower level need and you'll pick that up later. And there's a, that is also an unmet need up there. So you don't want to – the thing is about trying to compete how people get jobs done. Yeah, so just so I'll give you an example. So how powerful this idea is, and hopefully after September I can actually come back and tell you the exact story and what market and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) This technology takes what took 46 hours to do down to 8 minutes and 6 seconds. So it's a pretty extraordinary piece of technology that potentially disrupts the market for the market that he's in.
0: I think it would be really good where – later on to see some sort of a explanation video.
1: Yeah, that's right. You really need to see, so this is what we did, and here's the outputs, and see this output here, that's what that meant, and this is what we did next, and this is, yeah, no, yeah, happy to share the science and share the, um, you know, a real-life case study would be just amazing.
0: That would be wonderful. I will probably get some link from you later on so that we can share in the blog post. I suppose my next question then is, a lot of these running the business, it really just coming down to engaging the customer, also thinking outside the box. So from your experience of using MIS, running growth science, and now running the Opportunity Mind Attractor, and as you are helping so many businesses to validate their idea with, data science. My question for you is what is your advice for the innovator and the business who want to be success and who want to keep growing in this era of rapid change, especially in the situation that we are in of COVID nineteen, we really have to change significantly to be able to adapt in this current climate.
1: So there's one word, Jason? Maybe that's two words, the customer. (laughs) I think, you know, what's interesting is that the customer is the center of all of it, and I focus more on what does the customer experience want to be because it's that word experience that will actually enable you, if you're looking at digital transformation, for example, looking at a technology that's going to help you transform. The technology is the thing that's going to give you that experience, So, but my words of advice is, the customer. So, so many people I, or business owners that I meet, they go, we don't know where to start. I go, start with the customer. Start with the customer. Start asking them. But don't, you know, people have net promoter scores and whatever. Or, but to me, that's just a job satisfaction. That's not about finding an innovation or tweaking and turning incrementally. This is about trying to really leapfrog your competitors and trying to find a market position that you can win in and that is solely found with the customer. And then the science is about how do we take that customer experience and find a way to enter the market that actually enables you to compete with the existing companies that are out there trying to solve the same problem. So, for example, my competitor is really market research, where I came from. I'm just doing it in a different way. So whatever you're launching something, there's somebody trying to do it another way. It might be slower. And sometimes people prefer to do it the slow way. I mean, but there's ways that you can win because those that are the big guys, the market research companies, they will fight tooth and nail for their best customers. And there's a way that you can actually enter the market and not go head-to-head with those people. with those companies and win. The statistics are certainly in the favour of entering the market in a certain way under a certain strategy that can heighten your odds of success.
0: I think one of these strategies that I suspect that you're suggesting is I remember from the early days that I, I met you and we were having this conversation, you were talking about this whole thing that, a lot of time a businesses wants to do everything and many things. Who they, they basically want to do from everything from A to Z. But the reality is they don't have to as you were suggesting that there's no need of trying to do everything, but rather partnering with other people in doing what has to be done in building that customer experience And that itself would increase the odds of success. That's
1: right. So, yeah, there's a really sad story, I think, of somewhat business I knew way before I knew the science and all that sort of stuff, that they wanted to build this technology platform and they just kept developing and developing and it never got launched because they were trying to build the most perfect, the most featured Product, But if you could find just the one wee product that solved a problem and you could enter that that weenie little thing that most people wanted into the market with the view of adding to it over time, you would go to market faster. You'd solve and adopt customers like nobody else. And then you're introducing them to features along the way that would end up in that big platform that took them years to build but you'd be directed by your customers as to what feature they wanted to come next so you're solving those unmet needs the one that's the most unmet need the one that's most influential that as you said can just go to market get to market with the most minimal product you possibly can and then incrementally add to it and you will stay under the radar of the big incumbent that's got charging customers lots and lots of money, you'll get to the market and be able to get a gathering, probably a bigger market that hasn't had access to this market before until they come on the journey with you as well and all of a sudden you know that you've disrupted a market. How to do that is is all part of this, the science.
0: Good stuff. My next question for you is... What is your most important first principle? I think
1: I might've mentioned that one before, the customer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we all, we look out there and see all the nice shiny things that if we turn back here and when, just go back to the customer, that's where you're going to find the gems. If people could just do that, that's my first principle, go to the customer.
0: I feel like you remind me of Jack Ma from Alibaba. He's thinking about, the customer first because it's a customer who is determining the success of the company or not because they are the one who is paying and I am still trying to reconcile two different ideology. like I should that be the customer first then the employee second or should be the employee first and the customer second I'm still <laughs> trying to reconcile <laughs> well, which way I'm going. Well, I going.
1: Think- too.
0: That's a great way to put it. That gives me something to think about. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> uh, my final question for you is what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have?
1: Okay, it is The Innovative Solution by Professor Clayton Christensen. So I wish I had this book way back in my corporate life when. You know, we would just be running to launch new ideas. We didn't think too much about it. You know, no one was like picking these ideas that fell over and analyzing them as to why they didn't work. We just kept running and running and running and just launching and launching and some worked and actually most didn't work. I just thought that was normal. So, had I have read this book or it even been available for me way back then, as you so rightly pointed out more than twenty years ago, Jason <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: The Innovator solution is off the back of Professor Clayton Christensen's first book, which was the Innovator's Dilemma. So what I love about Solutions is that it does actually sum up the innovator's dilemma quite well and and adds some really practical resources and tips and hints. The thing I learned out of this book was that in my whole market strategy career, I believed that I was looking more at correlation than causation. That's what this book has shown me is that, yeah, to change things, to change those odds of 95% and 85% of fail rates, we have to start turning the needle and applying science to it. Those rates have been like that since Thomas Edison. and. I fundamentally believe that we've been using correlation rather than causation. So it ties nicely into the work of growth science. And as I mentioned before, Thomas Thurston actually worked with Professor Clayton Christensen at Harvard with this research at the very beginning. So there's a very big strong connection.
0: And I think the other book that you suggest, the first book, which is the Innovate the dilemma, I think is one of the favorite book of uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon as well.
1: Yeah, well, he's a man who's very customer centric, isn't he? Exactly. His whole vision and mission is to be obsessively customer centric. So nothing, nothing is done without the customer. No one can build a piece of technology and then throw it over the wall to the marketing department and say, "Now go launch this." Technology doesn't start working on something since it, until they actually get feedback. So you're absolutely right, Jason.
0: That's correct. And, and I think the way, if that is one thing that I would say people should take away is that it is about the understanding and identifying the problem of the, your customer and understand exactly what you are trying to help them to achieve and what's the job they're trying to achieve. Correct, and then only then you work backwards to use the data, to use the analytic, to use the data science, to use the technology to solve the problem. It should never be the other way around of we got this beautiful (laughs) data analytic model or whatever, and then think that it will just solve the problem magically.
1: You're spot on, Jason you got it
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much Linda
1: it's my absolute pleasure Jason always fantastic to talk to you and thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners I
0: think the pleasure is mine and thank you so much
1: fantastic thank you